right, hello, welcome everybody, everyone, anyone who's watching live right now on Facebook or those who are listening to the podcast or YouTube after. I'm Emma Goldblatt, I'm the program manager here at Shemayim. We have a great class for you today, our second in the series with Rabbi Aryeh Bernstein. Uh, to give you an introduction, he is a fifth generation Chicago Southsider and veteran Torah educator, especially in social justice spheres. Aryeh is the National Jewish Educator for Avodah, Educational Consultant for the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs, and a longtime educator for the Jewish Initiative for Animals. He is a senior editor of JewSchool.com, a member of the Tzedek Lab, and a firm believer that all justice movements must include a commitment to end the horror of factory farming. So without further ado, Rabbi Aryeh. Thanks, Emma, and thanks everybody who's here watching. Um, eager afterwards to find out who's here, uh, how many. Um, as we go, um, I'm going to be sharing a screen for um, for a lot of the time to look at text. Um, for those who are listening uh, on audio without video, I'll describe and read all the texts. Um, but know that that's an option if you want to later on follow on the YouTube um, channel. And I'll sometimes go off, uh, go off the share screen as well. And if you have questions or comments, um, just type them in the chat on Facebook Live, and Emma will send them on to me via Zoom, and we'll pause periodically to um, to field them and talk about them. So thanks so much for being here. Um, and again, I'll uh, acknowledge and show my gratitude towards Shemaim, of which I am an enthusiastic, longtime partner and uh, member, having gone to several of the conferences and so on. And also, I want to give a lot of appreciation to partner organization JIFA, the Jewish Initiative for Animals, in whose context they really developed these materials. Um, and uh, happy to be part of uh, a thriving ecosystem of Jewish organizations um, working to end the horrors of animal abuse. Um, I'm going to share my screen in a moment. What we're going to be talking about today is really uh, in a broad sense, the Torah's ethics of animal consumption, especially in the context of urbanites or suburbanites for that matter, but Jewish people living in places other than farms where we're not actually living with and raising and stewarding and taking responsibility for animals in their lives. What are the ethics of eating animals um, in their deaths in that, in that context? Um, and, in order to get there, we'll start at the very beginning of the first chapter of the Torah and do a kind of uh, a walk through what the Torah thinks about eating animals in general. And with that, I'll share my screen. So if you're viewing, as you'll see here, the um, title getting to this is Sacrifice, Cravings, and Bloodshed. Does Torah allow city dwellers to eat animals? So let's start at the very beginning. Uh, the human and Israelite Jewish diet in biblical evolution. We're going to look at a few different uh, Torah passages, biblical passages, and ask what do we learn about animal consumption in them. So starting at the very beginning, Genesis Bereshit, chapter one, the very beginning of the Torah, the first five and a half days, um, the creation of all the natural world and uh and eventually mammals, and then the end of the sixth day, creation of human beings, where the narrative slows down and God gives instructions to the human being. So God says, this is verse 29 of chapter one, God said, see, Hine, I give you every plant that seeds seeds that is upon all the earth, and every tree that has fruit that seeds seeds, they shall be for you for food. So God tells the first human being, Adam, that food available to eat is plants and the fruit of the trees. And for every animal on land, for every bird of the sky, and for everything that creeps on earth in which there is the breath of life, every green plant is for food. And it was so. So according to the idyllic vision of Genesis chapter one in the garden, in, uh, in the, 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 the original vision of creation, not only are human beings vegans, but so are all animals. There's no bloodshed, no killing involved in, uh, in nourishment in the, for any living creature, according to Breshit chapter one. Um, both humans and animals should get their nutrition from plants. 
um, and not, not only not killing, but even eating animals that have died on their own. That's not part of the vision in Brishit chapter one. Now, eight chapters later, we see that human beings have sinned, they've left the, they've left the garden, they've been out in the world, and there have been generations of degeneracy. The land is full, filled with sin, God is disgusted by it, can't take it anymore, and decides to start over. Uh, wipes out most of living being with a terrible flood, leaving just a remnant of every species to start over uh, with Noah, Noah and uh, his family and descendants. Here, God is kind of sobered, realizing that the idyllic vision of chapter one didn't succeed. Regardless, the world became a world overrun by violence. That's actually the way that the flood story is introduced by saying the whole world was filled with violence. Um, so God takes a different approach, a non-idyllic approach here in chapter nine, speaks ominously to human beings and saying, the fear and dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the sky, everything with which the earth is astir and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every creature that lives shall be yours to eat. As with the green plants, I give you all of those. So the legal point has been made here. Humans are now allowed to eat animals. They're now omnivores. And it's made explicit that, that means a hostile relationship between humans and all other animals. All other animals will now fear and dread human beings. That's what it means for them to be available to eat. They're given into human hand uh, in a power sort of way. However, here's the caveat. Flesh with its lifeblood in it, you must not eat. But for your own lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. I will require it of every beast, of human too, of every man for that of his fellow man, will I require a reckoning for human life. One who sheds human blood by a human shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God made the human. Well, this is a very strange add-on. Um, the basic point is that humans, you're now allowed to eat animals. You'll have a hostile relationship with animals that includes eating them. And maybe that will uh, tame the violent impulses that, uh, that, um, that overtook humans before, but no blood. You're not allowed to eat blood. You have to drain an animal of blood. Blood is life. If you're consuming death, you must separate from the blood. But as soon as God utters the very possibility of killing animals for food, as long as they spill blood, immediately God spins into a poetic vernacular and giving warnings about murder. If your own lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning. I'll require it of every beast, of the human too, of every man, of that is fellow man. One who sheds human blood, by human shall his blood be shed. And that's odd because nowhere was there any suggestion that humans could eat other humans, kill other humans for food. But what we take from this is that God is very nervous, that once human beings are allowed to kill animals and eat them, there's a very slippery slope, a fine line that could lead to murder, to a violent uh, and murderous um, culture, even within the species. And it's in the context of saying that you're allowed to kill animals for food and have this hostile relationship with them, be very, very wary. You cannot eat blood. And if you ever murder a human being, it'll be a cycle, uh, a cycle of violence their blood must be recompensed with yours. Uh, that's the meaning of being made in the image of God. So that's chapter nine. We're allowed to eat animals, but it's not cheery. Beware. Let's get a little later on, the Jewish people comes into being. Um, there was no Jewish people at the point of the flood. Ten generations later, Abraham comes around. And then later, after slavery, um, in the law code, right after the, uh, the revelation of Mount Sinai, seven weeks after the liberation from slavery. Um, in Exodus Shemot chapter 22, verse 30, uh, among a whole bunch of civil laws, God says, consecrated people, Anshe Kodesh, you shall be to me. 
So flesh in the field torn apart, you shall not eat. To the dog, you shall toss it. Don't eat roadkill. You might think there are certain uh, eco, uh, ecological positions that would say that you're never allowed to kill, morally shouldn't kill animals for food, but you could eat roadkill. You could eat an animal that dies on its own, flesh in the field torn apart, what have you. Then you're not producing violence. You're just um, benefiting from the natural cycle of life. What happens? So the Kodesh way of living, Anche Kodesh to humanly, consecrated people, you shall be to me, holy people, seems to say the opposite. Um, and I think the concern here seems to be that when you're eating an animal, which is permitted for all humans, including for Israelites, you have to relate to it as a mindful and conscious act. It's not a commodity. Meat is not a commodity. It's not a thing, meat. It's an animal. It's a living being. And when you think back to Breshi, Genesis chapter 9, and all this uh, uh, gloomy, sober uh, uh, framing of what taking animal life is, um, you have to be conscious of doing that. You have to be intentional, um, aware of the consequences, and not thinking that you're you know, somehow cutting corners or benefiting from the violence of the world. You have to honestly confront the violence. Um, we see this in sharper relief uh, in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 17. The Israelite diet continued. And there, in the context of sacrificial law, the construction of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, a, uh, um, a traveling temple for God in the desert. So Adonai spoke to Moshe saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, this is what Adonai, this is what the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel slaughters an ox or sheep or a goat in the camp or does so outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to Adonai, before Adonai's tabernacle, it shall be considered blood for that man. He has spilled blood. It's the term for murder. So eating, killing an animal not in a sacrificial context is murder. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. The most severe biblical uh, punishments. We don't really know how it's imagined to, uh, uh, to play out, but excision from the people, courage. So that the Israelites will bring their sacrifices, which they have been sacrificing across the open field, and bring them before Adonai to the entrance of the tent of meeting for the priests, and they shall offer them as communion sacrifices to Adonai. And the priest shall dash the blood against Adonai's altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting and, and turn the fat into smoke as fragrant odor to Adonai. Now, the sense we get so far from this passage is that. Well, let's talk about the, the impact. If people, um, if the only way to eat a domesticated animal is by bringing it to the tent of meeting, that is going to put a big slowdown on craving, on, uh, on consumption. If you, if I right now have uh, a craving, oh, I saw a goat and I really want it, I can't just kill it and prepare it and eat it. First, I've got to declare it consecrated. And then I got to watch out and make sure that it doesn't touch anything ritually impure. I've got to go to the mikvah or do whatever else I need to do in order to make myself ritually pure. Then I've got to go to the tent of meeting. Might be out of my way. Might have to wait in line. Then I've got to deal with the religious people, deal with the priests, and say their blessing. And, got it. and I might not be able to do it right away. The whole bureaucracy of the religious establishment slows things down to focus, to bring intentionality. If I have, I have to really want to eat this animal and I have to confront what is happening. If I go through this entire period and go through the religious functionary, who's going to say a blessing before they slaughter it. And all of us have been watching out to make sure there's no ritual impurity. And then they're ritually dashing the blood against the altar. I'm really confronting the consequences of what I'm doing. So what Leviticus chapter 17 does is it um, 
it's going to significantly reduce the consumption of meat and bring us back to the value of, uh, of Genesis chapter 9, in which eating animals is an ominous behavior on the verge of murder. Um, and in order to do it in a sanctioned proper way, we have to be really confronting the bloodshed and to be doing it in an intentional, conscious way with divine supervision. The passage gives us another explanation, which, and I think both can be maintained at the same time. Verse seven, it concludes, and they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons after which they go whoring. This shall be to them a law for all time throughout the generations. In other words, another problem was that, you know, by, by eating animals, not at the tent of meeting, people were going and building pagan offers or going to other pagan contexts and the religious establishment, the divine God establishment couldn't control how they were eating. And that could also be true. But one of the consequences will also be to limit and control and make sure that any animal consumption has divine religious supervision. Now that's supposed to be the law throughout the generations. The plain reading of the Torah um, does, not, um, does not confirm that. In the book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, chapter 12, we see uh, one aspect of a major uh, reform of the book of Devarim. The book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, um, seems to assume that prior to its innovation, there were multiple altars throughout the land of Israel. And the history told in the prophetic books and the books of Samuel and Kings indicate that that was the case. And then later on, on the time of King Chizkiyahu, there was a unification. Henceforth, only, um, uh, 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 only one centralized cult, place for the cult in Jerusalem. So one of the consequences Devarim chapter 12 wonders that, you know, previously people could, you know, there's a prohibition of eating animals. Um, I'll stop to share for a moment. If there's a prohibition of eating animals outside uh, the context of in, uh, uh, a validated altar, an official altar, and there were altars in every region, that meant it was going to slow people down significantly in order, if they wanted to eat animals and make them do it intentionally, but it was still possible and available to everybody. They could go to any regional altar where they lived and go and do that. But now what happens if you live in the deep Negev or the deep Galil, the south or the north, or even if you live on the Mediterranean coast, and now anytime you want to eat an animal, you've got to go all the way to Jerusalem. That's far. That's the only altar that is now sanctioned. So isn't this just um, an uh, unfair and unequal treatment? The people in the Jerusalem environs have a privilege that Jewish people elsewhere don't have. So the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, engages that. And there's a massive reform here. What, how biblical scholars understand it and what the plain, simplest reading is. We'll look at rabbinic readings of this passage in a little bit. So take care not to sacrifice your burnt offerings in any place that you like, but only in the place that Adonai will choose in one of your tribal territories. So... Jerusalem, cult centralization. There you shall sacrifice your burnt offerings, and there you shall observe all that I enjoin upon you. But whenever your throat craves, you may slaughter and eat meat in any of your settlements, according to the blessing that Adonai your God has granted you. The impure and the pure alike may partake of it, as of the gazelle and the deer. I'll pause for a moment to point out it seems rabbinic law won't say this, but the plain meaning of, uh, of the Tanakh and what biblical scholars will say is that in the biblical period, uh, hunting was permitted with uh, the laws of sacrifice and slaughter were for domesticated animals that could be offered as sacrifice. People were always allowed to hunt. And hunting, again, is a way of eating animals that requires intentionality and focus. It's not something that can be done in a flip uh, quick way. You won't just serve, you know, if you have a massive craving, you won't be able to immediately 
feed it. You'll have to let that craving turn into something more significant, more serious in order to eat it. So in other words, the, what we saw in Leviticus, Vayikra 17, was a sort of uh, domesticated um, evening of the playing field with what was already naturally the case with Hanukkah. Be that as it may, Deuteronomy 12, now with domesticated animals, uh, you don't have to bring them to an altar and you don't have to be ritually pure to eat it. You still must not partake of the blood, verse 16. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Skip to verse 20. When Adonai, your God, expands your borders as God has spoken to you, and you say, I will eat meat, because your throat craves eating meat. In all of your throat's cravings, you may eat meat. If the place which Adonai, your God, chooses to place God's name there is far from you, you may slaughter from your cattle and from your flock, which Adonai has given you, as I commanded you, and you may eat in the gates to all your throats craving, just as the gazelle and the deer eat, and so you may eat them impure and pure alike. But be sure not to eat the blood. Blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the flesh, etc., etc. So the question is, what now happens? It seems like now Jewish people can just eat meat whenever they want. It has nothing to do with the laws of ritual purity. It has nothing, there's no sacrificial oversight. And so the question is, Remember, Vayikra 17, Leviticus 17, said this was a law for all generations. What do, do the values and the energy and the spirit of Breshit chapter 1, Breshit chapter 9, and uh, Vayikra chapter 17, are they just gone now? What happens when there's a reform? We understand the motivation for the reform because the previous law was based on an assumption of reasonable access for people, equal access for people, no matter where they live, to slow down. There's no value at living closer to Jerusalem or outside. You're not sinful living farther from the, the center. Everyone should validly be able to partake in sanctioned Jewish life. And now that the centralization, all of a sudden there's a, this big inequality. Um, so we understand that motivation, but what happens to all the values with regard to animal consumption, which was described as on the verge of murder and something liable to lead human beings to act murderously um, if they do it incorrectly. So what happens now? Um, the, main, the main thing we have to do in order to understand Devarim chapter 12 is to understand its tone. And there's a, that really hinges on this phrase that I've translated here is because your throat craves it. The word I translate as throat is nefesh, and later text is translated as soul, but it would be anachronistic to translate biblical text as soul, since soul is more of a medieval concept. Um, nefesh comes from uh, other Semitic roots, meaning throat, um, and it kind of means your life in general, but with this uh, throughout the Hebrew Bible, but with um, a kind of origin sense of the place where you're gasping and, and, and manifesting the beginning and end of life in your throat. And te'avet means crave. It's a word we see elsewhere in the Tanakh. Um, I'm just going to pause for one moment before we go into that phrase and ask Emma if have any questions or comments come through. Not yet. Okay, great. Uh, feel free to offer them if you have them, and I will go on with the screen share and the textual analysis. So what do we make of that phrase? There are some translations that render it idiomatically in English as whenever you're to your heart's desire. And there's a sense in this passage is giving a robust permission to people. This is okay. I know you're used to thinking this is forbidden. It is now okay. Eat to your heart's desire. It is okay. And other translations avoid that idiom and try to cling to, um, to language that's a little more ambiguous. Now, I want to unpack why that is. Um, the word ta'ave, crave, in almost every biblical context is bad including in the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment in the Dvarim version is what's often translated as do not covet, is titavet, don't crave. It's not specifically about meat there, but um, it's about 
possessions and and marriage partners of other people. Don't do that. Um, more directly, the Midbar, Numbers chapter 11, is a whole story. One of the worst stories of the Israelites uh, being ungrateful in the desert. They crave meat. They say, feed us meat. And God is like, oh, you want meat? Fine. I'll give you so much meat that it's coming out of your nose and causes like a, a wind to blow and quails overrun them and the people are overrun and disgust. it's like any child's uh, cartoon of like a kid is caught smoking a cigarette so their parent makes them like smoke a whole pack run after the other so they're completely sick and repulsed and never want to smoke again that's the the idea there god is like oh you're not happy with mana which i'm literally feeding you that you don't have to work for it twice a day you want meat fine you're you're going to be so disgusted by it that's a whole passage that is um that talks about uh craving um non-stop that's that's the word that's the leitmotif of the entire passage similarly there are several passages in the tanakh that use these two words together ta'ava and nefesh craving and throat and all of them are really bad proverbs 21 10 a wicked person, a rasha, their core craves evil. Nefesh rasha, ivtara. Book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, a blistering attack on the people of Israel for abandoning God prior to the destruction of the first temple. And the prophet blasts them for lusting after foreign gods. What's the language used for talking about their lusting after foreign gods? Avat nafsha, an e, like, like a wild ass habituated to the desert with eager craving slurping the wind whose passion none can restrain that's what the israelites are like with their pursuit of foreign gods and this is the same turn of phrase used to describe the craving after animals in devarian chapter 12. maybe most uh, potently in the first book of shmuel samuel chapter 2 at the very beginning the priest eli has these uh these two sons who run a racket in their altar. They're described by the narrator as scoundrels, b'nei bli'al. Um, and this was their protocol. This was mishpat ha'kohanim. When anyone brought a sacrifice, the young priest would come along with a three-pronged fork while the meat was boiling. He would thrust it in the cauldron or the kettle or the great pot or whatever. And the priest, and whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take away on it. Totally illegal by biblical law. The priest was like, uh, the gifts that are, the entitlements of the Kohanim, certain parts of the animal were not enough, they would come and take another piece, whatever their fork came up. This is what they did to all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Now, even before the suet was turned into smoke, the fattiest fat, the young priest would come and say to the man who's sacrificing, hand over some meat to roast for the priest, but he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. So now the priest is, they're, they're upping the ante. Totally illegal in biblical law, but they're doing it anyway. And if the man said to him, let them first turn the suet into smoke and then take as much as your throat craves, he would reply, no, hand it over at once. I'll take it by force. The sin of the young man against Adonai was very great for the men treated Adonai's offerings impiously. Um, you hear the language of these revolted, righteous civilians who are following biblical law and offering their devotion to God, offering a sacrifice properly, and they're meeting with this totally corrupt priestly establishment who are brazenly trying to like take it, take the animals for them, the uh, meat for themselves that they're not entitled to, that should be uh, burned up for God. And the people pleading with them in disgust say, you know, then after after the fat burns, then steal, you know, take whatever your throat craves. Same language. Um, and, uh, you know, we do, in, in one passage, in Isaiah 26, we do see that phrase in a, in a positive connotation. For the way of your justice, Adonai, we yearn for you, for your name and for your reputation is the craving of our core, ta'avat nafesh. So we do see in this one passage a positive association of core craving throat craving being for God. But the vast majority of its usages are these really negative ones. So on the, on the one hand, it's very hard for a, a biblical reader who is attuned to the tones of the biblical text to read 
Deuteronomy 12 and not have a little bit of a version of a sense that when God says to you, uh, you know, you have to, you can only offer sacrifices in the singular place, the central place in Jerusalem. So now if you want to eat animals, eat it to your throat's cravings. It's hard not to hear that tonation because of all these other associations of Numbers chapter 11, just like those gluttons in the, in the desert. If you want to eat an animal and don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem to bring the sacrifice, you're allowed to do it, but it's gluttonous. In that way, the tone might be similar to the tone of Genesis chapter 9. Human beings are allowed to eat animals now, but you can really hear God's disgust that like, yeah, the, the idyllic uh, life of peace did not work. You're allowed to do it, but God help you. Me help you if you, if you spill blood. This is on the verge of murder, what you're being allowed to do. And so you, Deuteronomy 12 might have that tone to it through the repeated use of the term throat craving, ta'avat nefesh, which throughout the Tanakh has these, um, uh, these gluttonous um, and sinful connotations. However, the two passages in the Tanakh most literarily close to our passage are apparently positive. Just two chapters later, um, the Torah, still talking about centralization of worship, says that you know if you live far away, there's a tax offering, what we call in rabbinic Judaism, the Master Shani, the second tithe, that belongs to you. It's not a tax to, that you have to give away. It's a tax for you, but you can only access it in Jerusalem. It's an incentive to make sure that people in the periphery come and engage their spiritual life regularly. A way to understand Master Shani that I heard from Rabbi Saul Berman once about 20 years ago was imagine if if a certain slice of your monthly income went into a fund, a bank account that is yours, nobody else can touch it, but you can only access it to you know, go on a spiritual retreat or something like that. So it's your money, uh, but only, it's sort of like, like an HSA fund in a sense, like that it's your money, but only available for a certain purpose. So now what if you live in, in, in the periphery? So you've got this produce that you can only eat in Jerusalem, but by the time you would get to Jerusalem, it'll be rotten. That doesn't make any sense. And so there's a permission given that you can redeem it for money and then hold the money and buy the... Uh, use the money in Jerusalem. And then once you do the redemption, the produce you've redeemed, you can eat to your heart's content. I don't think there's any negative connotation there. I haven't seen any commentaries who pick up on it. In our passage, Nechama Leibowitz, many other, uh, and, and other commentaries do pick up on these associations that I've mentioned elsewhere. It's really hard to say that in Deuteronomy chapter 14 or in another another passage that talks to Kohanim, priests living in the periphery who aren't required to be in the temple regularly because it's too far to expect, but they're allowed to come whenever they want and, and clock in and enter the work shift. Whenever your heart desires. It's very hard to read that with negative connotations and I haven't seen anybody do it. So I just want to leave that there that on the one hand, our passage about this very new permission to eat animals is given is is uttered in language that is dripping with negative gluttonous associations when, uh, with regard to eating animals um, and other appetitive desires elsewhere in the Tanakh. But the two closest, most contextually similar usages seem to be innocuous. And so maybe the translations of this passage would say, to your heart's desire are, um, are sensitive to that. So we have an ambiguous passage. It's uh, textually ambiguous how we read it, what tone we hear in God's voice. That's all on the level of biblical pshat, the plain contextual meaning of the biblical text of Devarim chapter 12. The law is clear that henceforth eating animals does not have to be limited to, to offering a sacrifice, um, even in the time the temple stood. 
and then animals remain permitted after the temple is destroyed. Um, those who, if you want to claim that Jewish law requires veganism, you don't really have, there's not really grounds for that in a full, full-fledged way to say that the law requires it for everybody. Deuteronomy 12 permits animal consumption um, broadly. But is it a reluctant, kind of disgusted permission, or is it a, um, a robust, a heartily embraced one? That is ambiguous in the text. I'm going to pause again, ask Emma if any questions or comments have come through the chat. Not no. yet. Okay, great. Um, feel free to send them in if you have them. And we're going to move forward to ask, well, this is all on the level of biblical shot, but Jewish life understands the, the Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah, through the, the way it's reflected in rabbinic interpretation, the world of Midrash. How has this passage been understood rabbinically? I'm going to share a core rabbinic text that appears different forms in a few different passages. Share my screen again. So how do we translate the spirit of Deuteronomy 12 to a post-temple urbanizing economy? You know, what happens to the values of those earlier passages? You know, we, we talked about that before and maybe maybe the values of genesis 1 genesis 9 leviticus 17 maybe all those are captured in this negative sort of disgusted tone of devarium chapter 12 and saying like well you're allowed to do it because we sort of i don't know i god backed us backed myself into a corner with with cult centralization so yeah, eat animals, whatever, but I'm gonna view you like I view, you know, the, the desert generation of numbers 11, eat your gluttonous throats craving. So it's possible that that has the guilting effect of limit, limiting animal consumption even more than before, because now not only do you still to be an upstanding citizen have to go to the central altar, but you have to go far. So it's possible, but it's not explicit legally. So what happens to the values of those earlier passages? Are they just gone now? Is the Torah just saying, never mind? And when the temple's destroyed, you know, what happens to the permission to eat animals once the temple is destroyed? So we're going to look at three second century um, heavyweight uh, rabbis, um, people whose voices are instrumental in the Mishnah and the other um, Tanaitic literature, the foundations of rabbinic Judaism, um, in their interpretations of Devarim 12, by giving a sense of how they're actually um, viewing animal consumption in their urbanizing economy. So the Midrash in the, the collection called the Sifrei, which is the uh, Tanaitic um, collection of Midrashim, going verse by verse on the book of Devarim, of Deuteronomy, um, it starts with uh, the, the verse that we've been talking about when Adonai expands your borders, etc. And you say, I will eat meat because your throat craves eating meat. So we have three different interpretations of how to read that verse. Rabbi Ishmael says, this tells us that meat for craving had been prohibited to Israel in the desert. But once they came to the land, scripture permitted it to them. Now that's the closest to how we were reading it before. So that if you're, if you're wondering what's, the, what's new there, you're wondering, that wondering makes sense because it, it most, Rabbi Yishmael most carefully matches uh, the simple plain meaning, meaning of the biblical text as biblical scholars understand it. And that is actually consistent with Rabbi Yishmael's hermeneutics um, throughout rabbinic literature. So he's saying like, yeah, it, meat that had been prohibited is now permitted. This is a permissive text. Rabbi Akiva says, scripture comes here only to teach you the mitzvot spoken of there, the commandments spoken of there. Um, that's a cryptic comment, and I'll unpack it based on a parallel source momentarily. But for our purposes right now, suffice it to say that throughout rabbinic literature, whenever somebody says scripture comes here only to teach, it's 
always coming to um, to limit. It doesn't. It used to be X, but now it's only Y. So Rabbi Akiva is rejecting Rabbi Ishmael's reading that this is a permissive text and saying it's actually focusing in on certain regulations. We'll come back to that. And Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says, Scripture comes here only to teach you proper behavior. A person should not eat meat except out of craving. The reason why it says, because your throat craves eating meat, is to say a person should not meet except out of this kind of exceptional craving. This is proper behavior. Could it be that one buys from the market and eats? It teaches us saying when you slaughter from your cattle or from your sheep, it follows that a person should not eat meat until they have cattle or sheep. Could it be that one slaughters all of one's sheep or all of one's cattle? It teaches us saying from your cattle, but not all of your cattle. From your sheep, but not all of your sheep. This text is paralleled in a work called the Tosefta um, and also in the Babylonian Talmud. Now, I want to pause and really unpack. This is a critical passage for our understanding. I want to make sure that we're really understanding the implications of each of these positions. Um, we'll start with Rabbi Ishmael. Um, as I said, um, if you're hearing noise in the background, that is my 15-month-old child who recently got home from daycare is uh, having the giggles, as she often does at this time of day. That's a lot of fun. Um, so going back to our text. So once again, Rabbi Ishmael, who's well-known throughout rabbinic texts for hewing to the plain contextual meaning of biblical passages, follows suit here and interprets this verse as we have interpreted it meaning non-sacral consumption of domestic animals used to be prohibited until Devarim chapter 12, which permitted it. And that interpretation leaves unanswered our question to what happens to Torah's earlier aggressive concerns about what could happen when people eat domestic animals without restrictions. The Torah seemed to think that's going to lead to bad things. And it's unclear in Devarim chapter 12 that what happens to those concerns. But I do want to add on Rabbi Yishmael that it's possible that there's another teaching of his elsewhere that would indicate that his perception of the ongoing connection between heavily regulated sacrificial right and the permission to eat um, domesticated animals really stands in its place. So there's a, a tractate called Sota, which mainly deals with um, um, uh, trial by ordeal for an adulterous, an adultery situation. Um, that's really not concerned. The end of the tractate um, is a chapter that deals with um, uh, um, philosophy, theology, and reactions to exile and destruction um, in a, a variety of teachings about the disintegration of Torah law and culture during the period of the destruction of the Second Temple. So in that context, the Tosefta teaches that Rabbi Shmael said, once the temple was destroyed, in principle, dinhu, one should not eat meat or drink wine. But a court must not issue decrees on the community with stipulations that they cannot uphold. That's a very famous rabbinic principle. Um, um, uh, so for Rabbi Ishmael, the elimination of access to the temple should render the consumption of meat prohibited. It was only, in Vayikra, it was only permitted in sacrificial context. Then there's centralization, and the rest of us can eat it, but still it has this sort of center of gravity of the ongoing sacrificial cult, which we're all aware of, and that keeps us somehow connected to that intentionality. Um, uh, the, uh, the only reason that's not the law to say that there's now no meat consumption is because the community couldn't handle it. To remember what happened after Genesis chapter one, violence broke out everywhere. So the legal sensibility echoes that of Brashit Genesis nine. In principle, humanity shouldn't eat meat, but since the human race couldn't handle that, God relented and allowed controlled meat eating. And Rabbi Ishmael's teaching then 
shows further continuity with Baikra Leviticus 17. The Jewish people are permitted to eat meat only in the sacrificial context, which was then accessible. So in light of this teaching of Rabbi Ishmael's and the Tosefta, we can also infer his interpretation of the tone of Deuteronomy, Devarim 12, as reflected in his comment on the Sifrei. Meat for craving had been prohibited to Israel in the desert. But once they came to the land, Scripture permitted it to them. God would prefer to allow meat only within the regulated regime of sacrifices. But once sacrifices became inaccessible to most of the community, it wasn't viable to retain that restriction. So God reluctantly allows non-sacrificial meat. And according to this interpretation, Torah still prefers that humans limit their consumption of animals, though conditions have made it unwise to use law as the instrument of that limitation. Law is a blunt instrument, and with centralization or with the destruction of the temple, there isn't a good instrument for guarding and regulating it, but we're left with these values of knowing that in principle, we really shouldn't be doing this. It's not appropriate. It's not God's ideal vision for the world. And it's not really ideal for a world without a temple in which animals can be offered to God. So without that, we're not going to use the blunt instrument of law to prohibit it. We'll have, have some regulations. But the sensibility in Rabbi Ishmael's world is that you're religiously going to balk and pause before you eat animals. That's Rabbi Ishmael. His view is not held to be the uh, halakhically dominant one anyway. Let's talk about Rabbi Akiva. But Rabbi Akiva, remember, said that scripture comes here only to teach you the mitzvot spoken of there. So it's a cryptic statement, but what is clear is that he rejects Rabbi Ishmael's view that non-sacrificial meat had been prohibited in the desert. Um, so for him, the innovation of Devarim 12 isn't permitting previously forbidden meat, but the mitzvot spoken of there. Now, later rabbinic texts record the same dispute and they spell out Rabbi Akiva's position. They make it more explicit. If you want to look these up, it's Vayikra Rabbah 22.7 and the Babylonian Talmud Chulin 16b to 17a. You can see the parallels. Um, we're not going to look at them inside, but in context there, Rabbi Akiva is, more ex- is recorded more explicitly that whereas in the desert, the Israelites had no regulations over the methods of slaughter, they had to eat it sacrificially, but, um, but they could eat it however they wanted. Um, they could eat meat stabbed to death. Deuteronomy 12 innovates the requirement of slaughter, even from non-sacrificial meat. So whereas Rabbi Ishmael understood Devarim 12 to be issuing a new leniency, you are now allowed to eat meat, uh, Rabbi Akiva actually understands it to be issuing a new stringency. Israelites were always permitted to eat domesticated animals non-sacrificially, but now Deuteronomy mentions that which was omitted before. Sacrificial slaughter methods must be employed even for non-sacrificial meat. It's not really a reform for Rabbi Akiva, but it's an added uh, um, exposition of some restrictions on eating animals. He reads harmonically. Um, all the biblical legal texts um, that allows him to keep the, the, t- the, the line about all your generations in Vayikra, um, reads harmonically. And for him, the question of, but what happens to the values in the Torah's previous regulatory regime on eating meat once Deuteronomy 12 releases them? So for Rabbi Kiva, that question doesn't get off the ground because in his view, Deuteronomy 12 is adding restrictions, not removing them from meat eating. And he's saying that like, here, like whatever's been allowed has always been allowed, and now we're making it clear that animals must, can only be eaten via this regimented sacrificial uh, a slaughter regime. What would have, uh, it's not just in sacrificial context that you have to slaughter the right way, but all meat eating. Um, and that brings the sort of slowdown of, of the cultic life into all consumption, another slowdown. All right, now Rabbi Lazar ben Azaria is, I think, the most provocative view for our topic. Remember, Rabbi Lazar ben Azaria was the one who said Scripture is teaching us proper behavior. Derech Eretz, a person should not eat meat except out of craving. And then he has these legal questions. Could it be that one buys from the market and eats? Could it be, Yachol is always a hava amina. It's setting up 
a, a statement of what one might have thought that is being rejected. Could it be that the Torah would allow you now to just go to a store, go to a market, buy meat and eat it? No. It says when you slaughter from your cattle or from your sheep, it follows that a person should not eat meat until they have cattle or sheep. That's an explosive view. Um, so like Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Elazar rejects Rabbi Ishmael's view that we are now uh, removing restrictions. And he agrees with Rabbi Akiva that the function of Deuteronomy 12 is to limit and regulate behavior around meat eating. A person should not eat meat except out of craving. So picking up on the sense we discussed above that the word craving, ta'ava, usually refers to extreme, sinful, ravenous you know, desire, hunger, Rabbi Lazar ben Azari rejects the notion that this passage here could mean eat to your heart's content. So to him, the point is that the Torah, having previously taught you when and how you may or may not legally eat animals, now unpacks the spirit of those laws to tell you the proper way to do it. Meat eating should be exceptional, not casual. Only out of an intense craving. And he includes two specific lessons. A person should not eat meat until they own cattle or sheep. Your cattle, your sheep. And two, you shouldn't slaughter all of your remaining animals at once. From your cattle, from your sheep. And so from Rabbi Elzar ben Azariah, buying meat from the market is unacceptable Jewish behavior. Now, the thing is, legally, in terms of Jewish law, Rabbi Akiva's view is the one that has the most appearance in Jewish legal texts to understand uh, the regime of, uh, uh, of what it means to eat meat in a legal or kosher way. But Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah's position has uh, uh, gets cited kind of separately from that dispute throughout rabbinic and halachic literature um, as binding advice. Now he says derech eretz, proper behavior, which is a term that is usually taken to mean um, religious legal guidance that doesn't get shaped with the tools of legal regulations, but as kind of proper instruction that were left, left up to our own discretion. So I'm going to share some examples of some later um, halachic texts that how Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah's passage is understood. Oh, my wrong document. Second. Um, give me one moment. There we go. Um, so the Rambam, for example, what's no better heavyweight medieval uh, halachic authority to start with in the Rambam, in Hilchot Deot, in his legal code, but it's a section about uh, regulating human behavior for pop, uh, proper living. Scholars economize their affairs judiciously, eating and drinking and supporting their households and according with their finances and success, not putting themselves to excessive trouble. The sages commanded in their guidelines for right living that a person should eat meat only when they really crave it, as it is said, because you crave eating meat. A healthy person should suffice with eating meat once a week on Arab Shabbat. Someone wealthy enough to eat, to eat may, meat daily may eat. Uh, the sages commanded saying the person should always eat less than they can afford, dress in according to their means, and spend beyond one's means for the spouse and children. Take care of others and yourself. Proper living should be judicious. So this, the, the, these legal statements of like, could you ever possibly imagine that you could buy meat from the market and eat it? That doesn't get codified in the laws of forbidden food, um, but it continues to animate um, uh, a view that appears in these successive legal sources about proper living. Um, Rashi similarly says, you know, the Torah taught proper behavior that a person should only crave to eat meat from a place of broad hands and wealth. Animals are not a commodity. You can't do anything to drive price down. It's very expensive. And eating it should be an experience of, uh, that's limited by, by economic nature. Um, 
jumping forward later on, I have another example here, here the, the, the Kliyakar, important um, 16th and early 17th century, uh, and on the cusp of early modernity, uh, Bohemian sage Kliyakar and his commentary on, um, on the Torah. So he explains this verse, when you slaughter from your cattle, not at any time, but only periodically, at a time of overwhelming desire. This is the point of what is said, just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you eat them. Hunting is hard. You can't do that all the time. And it's said a person should only eat meat on rare appointed occasions. And the reason is that a person should not become accustomed to eat meat, as it is written, who hunts down prey, beast, or fowl. The sages of blessed memory said, the Torah taught proper behavior, that a person should eat meat only out of this kind of circumstance. That's the way the Talmud Bavli framed Rabbi Elazar ben Azari's teaching. The explanation of this matter is that you habituate yourself to eat animals found with you around the house. If you do that, if, uh, uh, such as ox, sheep, or goat, then every day you'll feel a strong desire and become habituated to eating it every day. However, if you don't eat until you hunt down in the forest, which involves danger and great trouble, then one's desires will be quieted because eating it won't be worth that much pain and trouble. That's how we eat even domesticated animals. You can only do it with animals that are in your context. I'll add to that that you know, the real context of Rabbi Lazar ben Nazaria assumes regular interaction with animals. You think about the spirit of Genesis chapter 1 and 9 and Leviticus 17 and all the readings of Deuteronomy 12 that we spoke about, the main thread that comes through is a concern that if animal consumption is going to be permitted, it has to be very intentional, aware of the violence being perpetrated with an understanding of the consequence. Elazar ben Azaria captures that very well for urbanites. If you own an animal, you're responsible for its well-being and its upkeep in its life, you're relating with it in its life, and you're not interacting with it as meat. You're interacting with it not only as an animal, but as this animal who might have had a name, a character, a personhood in a certain way, and you've intentionally made a choice of bloodshed. It's not a choice that I make, or probably many of the people listening to this podcast, and certainly not one that uh, Shemaim as an organization does. But when we understand what it means for Torah to the Jewish law, halacha, to allow animal consumption, it's always uttered with this context of context that require um, being aware of the consequences of what you're doing. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah's view, which is sits by itself in a passage in Talmud Bavli and is recorded in subsequent um, codes. So as you can't really have that intentionality when you're buying it from the market, the same way you buy lentils or peppers or other commodity foods, can't do it. You're not going to have that sense of uh, of COVID rush, of seriousness, of understanding its consequence. And he has another way for urbanites. Um, to think about uh, what it means. I would say that today in American urban contexts where livestock raising has been separated from urban life, the vast majority of us, according to the spirit of these Jewish texts, shouldn't be eating animals. Even those of us who think about animals a lot maybe don't have the proper COVID rosh, seriousness of mind to understand who this animal is and to be a participant in a knowing participant in its violence. Going to the grocery store might not enable that possibility. And that is a piece of the rabbinic tradition that I think the kosher industrial complex does not have an interest in, um, in promoting, but that a lot of us as Torah committed Jewish people should be really taking this seriously, promoting to think that like, well, if you're going to eat meat, what does it mean to eat this animal? What would be contexts in which that's possible? I don't think there is any overlap between the world of possibilities uttered by all of these texts up until and including Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria and the reality of factory farms, the reality of mass-produced industrial agriculture, depersonalized meat as opposed to an animal, 
um, and the experience of eating animals as an urbanite, not interacting with them. Um, Emma, were there any questions that came through or comments? No. Nope. Great, then in that note, I will say thank you for tuning in and listening and learning. What a wonderful thing to be spending hour at the end of the workday learning Torah. I hope that this has been stimulating to people and uh, you find out more opportunities through Shemaim and through other great uh, organizations. Um, uh, and, and I'll turn it back to you for other announcements. Great. Thank you so much, Rabbi Arya. It was a great class. Um, hope everyone liked it. Just a couple things before we go here. Um, we still are accepting applications to our synagogue vegan challenge if you're looking for ways to engage your community in vegan eating. Um, and we also are accepting campus fellows. So if you are a college age student or no one could be interested, um, you can find those details on our website or social media. And that is it for now. Thank you so much, everyone. And um, happy Hanukkah almost. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.